0: Um, I want you to to think with me for a second about turning points. Uh, Those times in in life, or really those times in history, where after the turning point, things are never again the same. Something has happened, it's altered life, and life for yourself, life for everybody else uh, is distinctly different, never again to be the same. Some experts have come up with some of these major turning points in history that have changed the world forever. And I was talking to some folks before the service, and and I do want to tell you that on the list of of major turning points in history is not the basketball team from Loyola, Chicago, uh, in the NCAA tournament. They've done well, but that's not a turning point, right? All right, are you all with me this morning? All right, I just want to share with you some turning points from history. One is fire. Fire is one of those turning points where after... The, the, the discovery of fire, how to utilize fire, what fire can do, uh, history has never been the same. Can I get amen to that? A, I'm thankful, especially on a day like today. And then there's the, the bow and arrows on that list. Once uh, mankind was, was, had discovered how to hunt beyond his own physical capabilities, utilizing machinery, uh, things have never been the same since then. And then there's the invention of the wheel. The wheel was one of those turning points in history that uh, made uh, transportation easier. And uh, I'm thankful for the wheel. Aren't you thankful for the wheel this morning? So amen to that. And then there's concrete. And we don't think about concrete being especially important, but if you think about what concrete enables mankind to do, certainly concrete is one of those turning points in history. And then there's the issue of uh, accurately being able to navigate the oceans. Once that was done with, with great uh, expertise, then trade routes and transportation of people and goods uh, exploded and allowed mankind to flourish. And then uh, for many of us, uh, we, we enjoy this one every single day, there's telecommunication, the ability to pick up a phone or a cell phone or, or you know, so in case you don't know what this is a picture of, in the old days, <laughs> you had to stick your finger in the hole and turn it around, you know, so uh, telecommunication... Opened the door for uh, for us to be able to communicate, even though uh, we're in long distances. Bo was telling me before the telephone, back in those days, he would send smoke signals over the land <laughs> with a fire. So it made it tough on a day like today, Bo. So now you just pick up the phone and you call uh, over there to her. And then uh, then there's the issue of nuclear energy and nuclear weaponry. Uh, certainly a turning point in history. And and though used as weapons only a couple of times. There's been the threat of, uh, of nuclear uh, bombs and, and, and warfare that has shaped and molded uh, our nation and our world even up until today. Another item on the list is space travel. Being able to, to get outside of the bounds of the gravitational pull uh, of Earth has certainly changed history. And the last item on the list uh, is, is the Internet. Being able to, uh, to plug into uh, what's happening around the world with the world wide Web. Now we think about major turning points in history and there are some people, uh, maybe maybe somebody here, I don't know, but there are some people that would point to some of these items on this list as the greatest turning point in all of history. But I would say to you this morning that the greatest turning point in history is not on the list of items that I have just shared with you. I would say that the greatest turning point in history will be remembered next Sunday as we gather together to celebrate Easter on Easter Sunday morning. The greatest turning point in history is the death, the burial, and the resurrection of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Can I get amen to that this morning? That is the single greatest issue and activity and item in all of history uh, that has provided a turning point for all of Mankind. Someone has has called the gospel. Uh, uh, the, the literal meaning of gospel simply is good news. And so the good news of the gospel has been said many ways, but this way in particular I like, and that is that sinful mankind, separated from God and under judgment for sin, now has access to God, forgiveness of sin, and eternal life through faith in Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Since the moment of the resurrection of Christ mankind's hope has been turned upside down. And though we were under God's wrath, His holiness, and His righteous judgment, now we can be set free. Amen? Stay with me. We're going to read together uh, just one brief portion of Scripture that encapsulates the Gospel. We find this in many places in the Bible. I'll be sharing more with you in just a couple of moments. But, but for now, I want us to read uh, the words of 1 Corinthians 15, verses 3 And four. I'd like to ask you to read them with me. Uh, The words will be on the screen. 1 Corinthians 15, verses 3 and 4. Would you read them with me? Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. That he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. And a tag or or another verse of scripture that goes with this is of Romans 10 and verse number 9. That also is on the screen. I'd like to invite you to read that with me as well. If you will confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Let me say that part again. You will be saved. Saved from sin, saved to eternal life. Our Heavenly Father, today as we talk about the gospel, the good news the most important good news, the most important turning point in all of history. Would you help us today, Lord, to be reminded for those of us who are believers? Would you help us today to be informed if we happen to be here and have never heard this good news, or it's never made sense, it's never been put into focus, Lord, may that happen even yet today, that men and women and boys and girls may come to a place of trusting in Christ, being forgiven of their sin, having the hope of eternal life, so that things will never again be the same because of Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. Well, this turning point, the gospel, the good news of Christ, when we come to trust Jesus as our Savior, it changes the world, and it changes the world one life at a time. We can look out across the world, and I hope you'll agree with me when I say that it seems like the gospel is needed now more than ever. It seems like there are people across our community, across our region, our state, our nation, and our world that desperately need to hear this good news. And so hopefully that can fuel us going forward as well so that we can share this message of the gospel and see lives changed one at a time. Well, how do we, how do we, we picture the gospel? You know, we, I put some pictures on the screen a few minutes ago about the telephone and the nuclear bomb and the bow and the wheel and all that. The, the, the image of the gospel is simply the image of a simple cross. You've seen crosses on steeples of churches. You've seen crosses on jewelry, earrings, bracelets, necklaces. You've seen crosses on t-shirts, uh, crosses everywhere it seems like. And, and as, as Christians, as, as Protestant Christians, uh, our symbol of the gospel is an empty cross. Empty because we recognize that it was on the cross that Jesus died for our sins, but He came off the cross when He was buried, and now there's an empty tomb to mark the fact that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who died on the cross in our place and for our sins, has indeed been raised from the dead and is alive forevermore, and our hope is is that we can likewise have eternal life with Christ. Now, if you are any student of the Bible over any period of time, you, you come to recognize that the passage of Scripture that we read a few moments ago from 1 Corinthians 15, the passage of Scripture from Romans chapter 10, are just two of many passages in the Bible that point to Jesus as the good news. Uh, what we celebrate with Easter is not just some obscure passage of the Bible that's at the back or that's insignificant, but we recognize that the whole New Testament pictures the gospel as this turning point event. And if we study even the Old Testament, we come to understand that the Old Testament points forward to the cross. The Old Testament points forward to the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. In fact, it's been said that Jesus is the theme of every book in the Bible. I want to share with you uh, what, what uh, one person has put together, uh, recognizing that Jesus is the theme of every book in the Bible. Here's what he says In Genesis, he is the seed of the woman. In Exodus, he is the Passover lamb. In Leviticus, the high priest. In Numbers, he's the pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night. In Deuteronomy, he is the prophet like Moses. In Joshua, he is the captain of our salvation. In Judges, he is our judge and lawgiver. In Ruth, he is our kinsman, redeemer. In First and Second Samuel, he is our trusted prophet. In Kings and Chronicles, he is our reigning king. In Ezra, he is our faithful scribe. And in Nehemiah, he is the builder of the broken walls of our life. In Esther, he is our Mordecai. In Job, He is our dayspring from on high and ever-living Redeemer. In Psalms, He is the Lord, our Shepherd. In Proverbs and Ecclesiastes, He is our wisdom. In the Song of Solomon, He is the bridegroom. In Isaiah, the Prince of Peace. In Jeremiah, the righteous branch. In Lamentations, He is the weeping prophet. In Ezekiel, the wonderful four-faced man. In Daniel, the fourth man in the furnace. In Hosea, He is the faithful husband. In Joel, he is the baptizer with the Holy Ghost and fire. In Amos, he is our burden-bearer. Obadiah, he is mighty to save. In Jonah, he is the great foreign missionary. And in Micah, the messenger with beautiful feet carrying the gospel. In Nahum, he is the avenger of God's elect. In Habakkuk, God's evangelist crying out, "Revive your work." In Zephaniah, he is savior. In Haggai, the restorer of God's heritage. In Zechariah, He is a fountain opened in the house of David for sin and uncleanness. In Malachi, he is the son of righteousness rising with healing in his wings. Jesus is the topic and Jesus is the focus of every book in the Bible. Can I share the New Testament part of that with you? Is that okay? In Matthew, he is Messiah. In Mark, he is Wonder Worker. In Luke, he is the son of man. In John, He is the Son of God. In Acts, He is the Holy Spirit. In Romans, He is our Justifier. In Corinthians, He is the Gift of the Spirit. In Galatians, He is the Redeemer from the Curse of the Law. In Ephesians, He is the Unsearchable Riches of Christ. In Philippians, He is God who supplies all our needs. In Colossians, He is the Godhead in bodily form. In Thessalonians, He is our soon-coming King. In Timothy, He is the Mediator between God and man. In Titus, he is our faithful pastor. In Philemon, he is a friend that sticks closer than a brother. In Hebrews, he is the blood of the everlasting covenant. In James, the great physician. In Peter, the chief shepherd who shall appear with a crown of glory. In 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, he is everlasting love. In Jude, he is the Lord coming with 10,000 saints. And in Revelation, he is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. That's who... Jesus is, and whether you're hearing that list for the first time, uh, you've never heard it before, or you've heard it for the hundredth time, and you know it well, because in reading the scriptures, you come to understand that in every book of the Bible, God is pointing you and I to Jesus, and in Jesus, we find the gospel. So as we trace the gospel throughout the Bible, I want us to look at, at several things this morning. The first thing I want us to look at is the prediction of the gospel beforehand. Before Jesus ever came into the world. Now, now, if, if you happen to be someone who is, is not a believer, you're not a Christian, maybe you don't know the Bible very well. Uh, in, in a basic sense, the Bible has two parts. There's the Old Testament and there's the New Testament. Uh, the Old Testament is the time before Jesus came into the world. About 3,000 or 4,000 years And from after that point, from from the New Testament, tells the story of Jesus and what happened after he was raised from the dead. And so let's look briefly at the Old Testament. Before Jesus was ever born, God made it clear that one day he was going to send the Savior to deliver God's people, to deliver every possible person from their sins. For example, in Genesis chapter 3, the very beginning pages of the Bible, if you know this story... God created Adam and Eve in His own image. Adam and Eve sinned when they were tempted by the serpent, Satan, in the Garden of Eden. And at the very moment of temptation, and the very moment of the first recorded sin, at that very moment, God was there to offer salvation. Even though judgment was coming for sin, God was there with the message that one day there would come a Savior to deliver not only Adam and Eve, but all of mankind from sin when they would put their faith and their trust in Him. While God was announcing judgment on the serpent upon Satan, He gave the promise of the Savior. And in Genesis 3.15, God says this to the serpent. He says, I will put enmity or offense or, or antagonism, I will make you enemies with. He says, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and and you shall bruise his heel. So here's a picture of the serpent biting the heel of the Savior and wounding the Savior as the Savior with that same heel is crushing the head of the serpent. So God is saying there's coming one who will be born who will crush the power of the devil. Amen? He's going to crush the power of the devil even though the devil inflicts a wound upon the Savior. We see that played out throughout history. If you fast forward hundreds of years, now the people of God are enslaved in Egypt and God has sent Moses to deliver the people from Egypt. And Moses has spoken for God and God has sent uh, a series of plagues upon the Egyptians to demonstrate who God is and to demonstrate to Pharaoh that he should let God's people go. The tenth plague was the worst of all. It was the plague of death. The death angel would come and would destroy, would take the life of the firstborn. And uh, and God, through Moses, gave instructions to the Israelites of what to do, so that when the death angel came, he would pass over their home, and the firstborn would not be killed by the death angel. And in Exodus 12, verses 6 and 7, the instructions go like this. The whole assembly... Of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight. So, part of God's deliverance of the people had to do with the death of a lamb. A lamb. And so, the lamb would be put to death at twilight when the sun was going down. Verse 7 of Exodus 12. Then they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and on the lintel of the houses. And so, think about this. The death angel is coming to exact God's judgment on the unrighteous. And a lamb is to be killed and some of his blood put across the frame of the house. And then notice verse number 13. God says, when I see the blood, I will pass over you. Would you read that out loud with me? When I see the blood, I will pass over you. God says this. To the, Egypt, to the Israelites in Egypt as a, as a means of, of, of exacting His judgment upon the ungodly and as a way of bringing deliverance of the Israelites out of the bondage of slavery. And it serves as a picture that down the road, God's Savior will do exactly the same thing. When the blood of God's Lamb was shed and the blood is applied to the heart of the individual, not the doorpost, then God's death angel, God's judgment will pass over that person when he sees the blood of the Savior on the heart of the person, applied to the heart of the person. A little bit later, in Exodus chapters 25 through 40, we see God instituting worship. He's telling his people, this is how you worship me. This is how you come into my presence. This is how you recognize who you are, and this is how you recognize who I am, and this is how you move from being in a state of of being outcast and sinful into a state of being in my presence. Something has to happen. And so so in uh, the temple or the tabernacle worship, just as in the Exodus, a lamb was killed on the altar, and the blood from the lamb was taken And applied on the mercy seat, inside uh, the, the Holy of Holies where the presence of God was. The blood from the Lamb paid the price and symbolized God's coming Savior so that when God saw the blood, He passed over the sins of the people. And there was a visual teaching there that sin brings death, but God provides a substitute. And there we see the message again, all the way back from Genesis. Now we're in Exodus. Sin brings death. God provides a substitute. Hundreds of years later, in the book of Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 53, Isaiah is allowed to see a picture of what has been come to be called the suffering servant the one that God would send to take away the sins of the world, Isaiah had a glimpse of that and wrote about it in Isaiah 53 and 54 and 55 and 56. There's a long passage of Scripture that we don't have time to fully cover this morning, but but I will point out to you in Isaiah 53, verses 4 and 5, Isaiah is talking about the coming Savior that God was going to send. Symbolized in the Lamb at Passover, in Exodus chapter 12, symbolized in the lamb on the altar that was, that was slain and his blood was shed so that the people's sins might be forgiven. The lamb did not take away their sins. He only symbolized that sin brings death and God's going to provide a substitute. In Isaiah 53, God revealed that the lamb was going to be a man and that man would bear the penalty and take away the sins of the world. Listen to what God says in Isaiah 53, verses 4 and 5. He, that is the, the man who is going to come. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. Now notice again, look at verse 4. Surely he, what has he done? He has borne our griefs. He, our griefs were put upon his shoulders, He has carried our sorrows, the the sorrow that we feel for our sins when we recognize that our sins keep us away, away from the presence of Holy God. That sorrow has been placed upon Him. And so He took our grief and our sorrow upon Himself. And that verse tells us that when we look on Him... We see that he seems to have been stricken and smitten and afflicted by God. It seems that he's done something wrong when he's done nothing wrong. It seems that he's done something wrong because he's now carrying our grief and our sorrow. Here's a picture of a man who's done nothing wrong, assumed our guilt, and is now being punished on our behalf. Verse 5 says, He was wounded for our transgressions. Notice that. His wounds came not for his own sins, but for our sins. I could even make it very personal and be true to the Bible and say, He was wounded for my transgressions. My sins are the reason that Jesus, the man being talked about here hundreds of years before he was born, that my sins were punished and put upon Jesus. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon Him was the chastisement that brought us peace and with His stripes we are healed. Here's somebody who's going to come. Not a lamb, not an animal, but a man. And He is going to be beaten. He's going to to, to assume our sorrow and grief and He is going to be punished. And His stripes where He is beaten and ultimately where He dies, that is what sets us free. Because sin brings death and God provides a substitute. But not only do we see his, his substitutionary death in the Old Testament, but we also see his resurrection. He would not stay dead. In Psalm 16 and verse 10, what's called a, a messianic psalm, a, a psalm looking forward to one day when the Savior was going to come, it says this, you, this is the, this is the, the Savior speaking to God, you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or to hell or let, my, let your Holy One see corruption or decay. So this is, this is a psalmist being given a glimpse of the resurrection of the Savior one day and the Savior crying out to God and saying, You will not let me see decay. I will not stay in the grave. Even, in, even after the, the Messiah, the Savior has been punished for the sins of the world and killed and buried, He would not stay buried but would be raised from the dead. Somebody ought to say amen to that this morning. So God reveals hundreds of years in advance exactly what would happen when the Savior came into the world. Now understand something. Salvation or the gospel or the good news of Jesus was not an afterthought of God. It was, it was not a, a plan B. It was not a response of God to the fact that mankind had sinned and God has to, has to scramble around and say, what am I going to do now? No, it is something that God knew from the foundation of the world, had His plan in place, and He told us long before the plan came to, to be completed that this is what's going to happen. That's how awesome God is. We were able to predict the gospel before the events of the gospel took place. Let's take just another couple of moments and, and look secondly at the events of the gospel, the events of the good news, the, the, those events that happened with Jesus the fulfillment of the suffering servant, the fulfillment of the Passover lamb, the fulfillment of the lamb used in worship uh, and and his blood spilt and, and, and placed on the Holy of Holies. Let's look just for a moment at the events of the gospel that we'll celebrate next week. Today begins Holy Week, the Palm Sunday, the, the day that Jesus came into Jerusalem and the people took the palm branches and they shouted, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And they put the palm branches down and their coats down and Jesus entered Jerusalem and it began an entire week of Jesus teaching and preaching and, the, and, and ultimately ending on Thursday with the, with the Passover meal celebrated by the, by the, by the disciples and then the, the, the crucifixion on Friday, the resurrection on Sunday. So let's look at just very briefly those events. Now, Jesus had come into the world, and He had begun His ministry, and He had been preaching and teaching and healing and raising people from the dead and feeding the 5,000 and, and, and quieting the sea uh, when the storm rose up. And, and in Luke chapter 9, and verse 51, it tells us that when the days drew near and Jesus knew, now here's the turning point in His life and ministry, the turning point from his public ministry, from his preaching, from his teaching, from his miracles of healing and all that. that now there, there's come a turning point, and the day drew near for him to be taken up. Taken up to Jerusalem. Taken up to the cross. Taken up to bear the penalty, the sins of the world. When, when that time came, I, loved, I love Luke nine fifty one because it says about Jesus, he set his face to go to Jerusalem or turn and he knew and to set your face is to turn in a direction and to put a laser focus and to not be deterred to the left or to the right by anything. Jesus at this point in his ministry said it's time to go to Jerusalem and face the cross. Somewhere along the same time Mark 10 and verse 45 uh, tells us about Jesus that uh, at the death of Lazarus Jesus said these words The Son of Man came not to be served but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So about the same time he's he's pointing out that he himself will be giving his life as a ransom. He himself will be paying a price. He himself will be taking and assuming the debt of someone else which falls into place with what we know about the suffering servant from Isaiah and the Passover lamb. The lamb and the servant from Isaiah are all pictures that the innocent will bear the penalty for the guilty, thereby letting the guilty go free. Jesus says, I'm going to pay a ransom, and you're going to get to go free. And then in John chapter 11, here's where he talks about the the death of Lazarus. I was a little ahead of myself a moment ago. But in John 11, uh, Jesus says this in verses 25 and 26. He says, I am the resurrection and the life. There's a raising from the dead that comes from me, he says, Whoever believes in me, even though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. So starting with John 11, let's walk through the the rest of the Gospel of John very quickly and look at these key moments around uh, the good news around the Gospel as it played out. John 11, Jesus makes this statement about being the resurrection and the life. In John chapter 13, Jesus has the Passover meal. He washes the disciples' feet. He, he, uh, Judas leaves to betray. And, and Jesus celebrates a Passover meal while he himself is about to complete or fulfill the Passover. The first Passover back in Exodus, where the lamb was killed and his blood was, was put on the doorpost, Jesus now celebrates that with his disciples as a fulfillment of the Passover In John chapter 18, Jesus is betrayed by Judas and he's arrested. He appears before the Jewish leaders and the Roman leaders and back and forth he goes over the course of night. And three times Peter denies Jesus. That happens in John 18. In John chapter 19, one of the the most sad, uh, if not the most sad uh, uh, passage of Scripture in the Bible because there we read that Jesus is beaten. And Jesus is crucified on a cross between two thieves, two others who are guilty of their sins uh, while Jesus is innocent. In John 19, Jesus dies on the cross. And the Roman soldiers come with a spear, and, and they put the spear into his side, under his ribs. And out of his, 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 the, the wound comes blood and water mixed together. An indication that, that the, blood and, the blood has settled down, and, and death has indeed occurred uh, in, in Jesus. And he is taken from the cross and buried by a man named Joseph of Arimathea, and another man named Nicodemus, who Jesus famously spoke to in John chapter 3. Fast forward to now Sunday morning and it's John chapter 20 and Jesus has been buried in the tomb by Joseph and Nicodemus and the women come to the tomb and they find the stone has been rolled away. The women run back to tell the disciples who've met together and in response Peter and John, they run ahead of everybody else to the tomb and they find it empty and not knowing what to do, they turn and went back home. There at the site of the tomb, Jesus appears to Mary Magdalene and Mary goes back and tells the disciples that Jesus is alive that's the message of the gospel you killed him on the cross he was buried in the tomb but three days later he is risen from the dead amen he's risen from the dead and then Jesus appears to the disciples and in John chapter 20 and in verse 21 Jesus says to his followers as the father has sent me as the Father has sent me to proclaim the good news, and as you've seen me crucified, buried, and now raised from the dead, as the Father has sent me, even now I am sending you. That is, in a nutshell version, the events of the gospel. Death, burial, and resurrection. And now I want us to notice uh, very quickly what is the meaning of the gospel. What does all this mean? Uh, you know, if, you're, if you're like I am, you've, you've read the story, you, you know how it starts, you know how it ends, you know the details, and, and this is a good time hopefully being reminded and celebrating all that it means. But for some, perhaps, this may be the first time you're hearing this story, and you, and you may be thinking, well, well what, what, what is it about this message What is it about Easter? What is it about the death and the burial and the resurrection? What does it mean for the world? What does it mean for me? Does it have any meaning at all? Well, thank you for asking if you're asking that question. And let me point out to you uh, just a couple of places uh, that, that it tells us three things that are important to the meaning of the gospel. For example, in John chapter 20, we're still in John 20, verses 30 and 31, it says this. Now, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, That are not written in the book. Everything's not in the Bible. There is enough for us to know. But not everything. Verse 31. But these things are written. The stories are written. The teachings are written. The miracles are written. The cross is written. The, The empty tomb is written. The appearance of Jesus is written. All these things are written. So that you may believe. That Jesus is the Christ. What is the meaning of the gospel? Meaning number one. Is so that you might believe. This message is written not as a historical tale, not as as something to say, oh, that's nice, but it's written to have a personal, upon my life, and upon your life, and upon the lives of everybody in the world, so that every possible person could hear the message and believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And secondly, so that by believing, you may have life in His name. The first reason, the first meaning, is so that you might believe. The second reason is so that you might have life. An abundant life now, an eternal life later. Jesus said, I'm the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me will not, even though he dies, will live. And he who, he who believes will live and never die. There's an eternal life coming to those that believe in Jesus. You see, in the Old Testament, we find the message, sin brings death. God provides a substitute. In the New Testament, we find the great exchange mentioned all throughout the Old Testament in advance has taken place. In 2 Corinthians 5.21, it says, For our sake, God made him, Jesus, to be sin when Jesus knew no sin. So that, here's the meaning, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. That's the third meaning of the cross. The third meaning of the gospel. Meaning number one, so that you might believe. Meaning number two, so that you might have life. Meaning number three, that you might become the righteousness of God. So that when God looks upon you and when God looks upon me, He doesn't see us in our sin. He sees the righteousness of His Savior. The righteousness of our Savior, His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And So now let's take just a moment and look at the last part I want to share with you. That is the application of... Of the gospel how do we take this message how do we take this meaning and how do we apply it to our lives and how do we apply it to others because what we come to understand with the application of the gospel is that because of Jesus salvation is now available to all people everywhere throughout all history salvation is available but listen salvation is not automatic it doesn't come to everyone although it is available to everyone. We have to do something in response. Let me give you some Bible examples. In John chapter 1, in verse 12, it says, To all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become the children of God. When we hear this message and receive it as real and believe on it in faith, then we become the children of God. This available salvation becomes real in our lives. In Acts chapter 4, in verse number 12, it says, There is salvation in no one else besides Jesus. For there is no other name besides Jesus under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. See, there's a mustness to salvation because without it, you're left in your own sins to face a holy and righteous God who will punish your sin. And with salvation, you're set free and have eternal life and forgiveness of sins. So there is a mustness to be saved. Romans 10 and verse 13 says that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. It doesn't say those who check off this list will be saved. It doesn't say those who earn it will be saved. It doesn't say those who, who, who do well enough in this life to be better than their sins. It doesn't say they will be saved. It says everyone who, will, who believes, everybody who believes will be saved. You can be the best person the world has to offer and not be saved if you don't believe. You can be the most low-down scoundrel ever known to mankind, and if you will believe, you will be saved. That's what the message of the Bible is. And then I want you to notice, as we think about the application of the gospel, a beautiful picture from Revelation chapter 7, a picture of heaven. And in heaven, we see this description, uh, Revelation 7, verses 9 and 10. I looked... And behold, a great multitude that no one could number was there in heaven. The people that responded in faith are going to be innumerable. You're going to look out, and it's going to be a larger crowd than you see at an NFL football game. It's going to be a larger crowd than what you see lined up for any march in Washington, D.C. It's going to be a larger crowd than anything this world has ever known. And they're all going to be assembled there in heaven. But notice this beautiful picture here. It says they're going to be from... Every nation. Because you see, the message goes out to every people group, every race, every nationality. All tribes, all subgroups of people. And then it goes on to say, All peoples, all languages, all, all, all different differences of all kinds, of every kind, will all be standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in a white robe, with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Now notice this. At the very beginning, when God is giving us a picture of what's going to come with the Savior, it's a picture of a Lamb. And then Jesus comes and fulfills the prophecy of the Lamb by being the one offered Himself. And now in heaven, looking backwards, Jesus is called the Lamb. You see the words on the screen, starting with salvation belongs to our God. I want you to to read these words with me with some great energy and enthusiasm because this is practice for heaven. I love heaven practice. Don't you love heaven practice? So this is some practice for heaven, starting with the words salvation belongs to our God. I want you to read those words with me enthusiastically. Ready? Here we go. Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. What a beautiful picture this is for us. Now, let me conclude all too quickly with a couple of things. One is just a reminder that the greatest turning point in all of history is the gospel, the good news. The death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Let me point this out. This great turning point in history is good news for me only if it is applied to my life. It's good news for me only if I take it, only if I believe, only if I receive, only if I embrace it. If I just simply hear it but don't do anything about it, it may be great news but it's not applied to me. I have to respond by believing it and respond by applying it to my own life. There's a turning point question I have there listed in your listening guide from Acts 16 and verse 30. And the question is asked is this. What must I do to be saved? What do I have to do? What list do I have to check off? What, what great religious activity do I have to participate in? What is required of me that I might be saved from my sin? And the answer is given in the next verse, Acts 16, verse 31, where it simply says, Believe in the Lord Jesus and you'll be saved. The only thing we have to do is our faith and our belief. Let me conclude with this and tell you that I am so thankful that there came a time in my life where I heard this message, and I believed this message, and the gospel was applied to me. I'm so thankful to be a part of a church where so many people who gather on a Sunday in in this service and in our next service in a few moments, and, and I'm so thankful to be a part of a church where this message has been shared and believed by so many people and it's changed our lives, hasn't it? It's changed our lives and we're no longer the same. Our previous life is different than our current life because we're looking forward to what's coming in our future life because of the gospel. I'm so thankful to be a part of a church that shares This message in our Sunday School Connect groups, in our worship services, in our Awana program, in our youth program, and all the different things that we do in a church, but even even most effectively, from life to life, person to person, in, in homes and in schools and in jobs and in communities. So let me ask a couple of questions. Has this message, this gospel, been applied to your life because you have simply believed? And if it has, I want you just to celebrate in your soul right now. Amen, hallelujah. I have believed and I have been saved. And if you have, I want to invite you to celebrate that by the way that you live. And I want to invite you to join me in identifying others who have not come to that place and to recognize that according to the scriptures, they're still under the wrath of God for their sins. And I want to invite you to join with me in praying for a family member who's not a believer, for a neighbor who's not a believer, for a child who's not a believer, for a parent who's not a believer, for a coworker who you may work beside every single day and they're not a believer, for a, a friend or neighbor down the street, a person on your team, a person that you, that you love to cheer for your favorite team with, they may, they're, but they're not a believer. And we love them enough to, to, to tell them about this and that and the other and to be a good neighbor and a good friend and be there for them in trouble. We need to be there for them in the most important thing ever, and that is the wonderful message of the gospel. So I want to ask you and invite you, if, you're, if you are a believer, to join me in identifying these people. Pray for them that God would stir and move and pray that God would open a door and then look for an open door to invite them to come to Christ to invite them to come to church, to hear the gospel, to invite them to know Jesus as their Lord and Savior so that one day they can thank you as they thank the Lord for you. But also know this too, in any gathering of people at a church, not everybody's a believer. And I'm sure that even in this gathering right here, as many of us as there are, everyone is not a Christian. Maybe you've heard the message a hundred times and you just say, listen, that's not for me. You might just say, well, I don't understand it. You might say, well, you know, I'm fine like I am. I hope even today, whatever your response is, if it's been negative in the past, I hope, and I've already prayed throughout this week and this morning, I've prayed, Lord, would you, would you tenderize the heart of the person that needs to hear this message of the gospel? To receive it. And it's such a simple message. It's, it's as simple as A, B, C. A, just agree with God and admit the fact that we're sinners in, 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 the, in the presence of a holy God. And B, believe. There's no great thing that God calls us to do because there's no great thing that would qualify us. We simply have to believe and accept and make it real in our life believe that Jesus is God's Son, that He died on the cross for our sins, that He was buried and raised on the third day, and believe that for all who call upon Him, that they will be saved. And so third is just confess. The Bible says confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord, believe in your heart God raised Him from the dead, and you will be saved from your sin and to eternal life with God. If you're here this morning, and that's... Never been true in your life, but some something inside is stirring now. I can assure you, it's not me that's caused that, but it's God's Holy Spirit stirring in your soul. I would invite you right now. I invite everybody just to bow your head and close your eyes, just in advance of this last song. I would invite you, if you've never made it right, you've never claimed your salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. I would invite you even now, as I voice this prayer outwardly. I would invite you to pray inwardly from your heart. And just invite the Lord to save you. There's no magic formulas, no magic words. Just simply an expression of the truth of the gospel of Christ. I would invite you to pray like this. Lord Jesus, thank you for loving me and creating me in your image. And right now, I admit to you and agree that I have sinned and I'm under your judgment. I'm sorry, Lord, for my sins. And I believe. I believe that Jesus is the Christ. That He is the Passover Lamb. That He is the one who came to take away sins. I believe that He died on the cross in my place and for my sins. I believe that He was buried and raised on the third day. And right now, as best I can, as best I know how, I confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. I invite you to come into my life, forgive my sin, walk with me daily, take me to heaven one day. I thank you, Jesus, for saving me. Amen. And amen. Let's stand together. And as will lead this last song, the invitation is. If you are a believer, pray. Even now, identify people to pray for, to come to know Christ. If even this morning you've trusted Christ and you prayed as as I led in that prayer a moment ago, I'd love to have a moment, even as we sing, just make your way down here to the front and just let me know. Pastor, I prayed that prayer. I trusted Christ as my Savior. I'd love to have just a moment to share with you. The important thing is find somebody to tell and let them give you some words of encouragement. As we sing, you respond as God leads.